Good afternoon or evening and welcome back. Thanks for downloading this week's episode of the Weekly Curio Podcast, the podcast that attempts to make you sound smart all week long. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Tom Britton from Freak Show and Tell. And I'm Jeff Wagg, the curator of College of Curiosity. As always, we like to start our show with the puzzle. Okay, this week's puzzle. Billy was born December 28th, and yet his birthday always falls in the summer. How is this possible? Our first story of the week, our love of nature. Oh, yes. And dangerous, dangerous nature. Crazy ants dominate fire ants by neutralizing their venom. First of all, I love that there's an ant called the crazy ant. There is. There's a whole subspecies of these things, and they're, they're called crazy ants because they... They do crazy things. Um, these Most ants, when you watch them, you can kind of figure out what they're doing. If they're foraging for food, they're going in a predictable pattern. If they found food, they're going in a very predictable pattern. Crazy ants don't do that. Crazy ants just kind of wander around every which way. It's very difficult to figure out what they're doing. And they also have a habit of living inside electrical boxes, conduits, air conditioners, uh, okay, I've had experience with these ants before, uh, yeah. the electric boxes. That's So that's that's not why they're crazy. It's because they have an unpredictable pattern? Uh, well, what I, what I researched today was that the etymology of the crazy ant name comes from their unpredictable nature. But now that they're in the U.S., they're an invasive species, they are beginning to get that, that moniker because of what they do. And it's quite destructive. They've cost millions of dollars. There was a, an apartment building in Austin that um, had 150 air conditioning units. You know, it's Texas, it's hot. And then over the course of a few months, 90 of those units were taken out by ants. And so the reason is, there's two theories. One is that the ants are somehow attracted to electrical signals. That's what I read. That was the theory I got, that they're mistaking it for something they can pick up. Yeah, and and it's a little warmer, and they might be, you know, there's resistance in the cable, so it's, you know, a degree warmer, that might be enough to attract them. But this is a species that does not make its own burrows. They're what's called opportunistic ants. They look for a place to live. These poor ants, crazy and opportunistic, deadbeat ants on Maury Povich, next. We're not going to feel sorry for these ants too much longer. Uh, So another invasive species that everybody who lives in the South knows is the fire ant. Yes. uh, You know, even people who've just visited the South and have had the misfortune of stepping on one of their mounds wearing flip-flops. So for those of you in the north who aren't familiar with fire ants, fire ants are this species of ant that came up from Argentina maybe 30, 40 years ago and and very quickly spread across the south. Now, this species of ants happens to fly. They have um, the males and females, the queens, will fly, and that lets them spread very quickly. That'll be important later. So, um, however, they have this unusual ability that uh, if somebody disturbs their nest, they will swarm en masse and cover, like let's say you step on a nest on your foot, your foot will be covered in seconds with hundreds, if not thousands, of stinging ants. And and what they do is, is really insidious. They, they'll bite your leg, which won't hurt. The, you know, the bite isn't the problem. But then they will pivot their abdomen, their stinger around, and like make a clock on your leg, stinging you at every hour. If you can imagine that. So the ant very quickly gives you like 12 stings and multiply by 100 and 1,000. These things are deadly. They, they kill kittens and small animals regularly. They have killed cattle. They've killed people. Uh, they're a big problem. And a lot of people are excited because we finally found a match for these things. You know, people have been 
spraying chemicals and burning them and all this stuff, but there were no natural predators. And they're now, a particularly hardy species. Very well, hardy. ants are a hardy thing they in are. general, and fire ants in particular are tough. Yeah, the biomass of ants in the world is greater than any other organism that we can name. I mean, ants own this planet. We we might think we do, but long after we're gone, the ants are still going to be here. Fire ants also have the ability that when it floods. They will make a raft out of their bodies and keep enough oxygen inside the raft to keep them alive, which is a problem for people in floods because people will grab onto these rafts thinking it's just a safe log to hold onto, and it's actually a massive fire ants. Anyway, so they come up from Argentina. Now, this new species of ant has come up from Argentina, the crazy ants, specifically the tawny crazy ants. Yes, there are other species of crazy ants. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to believe. Well, these guys have lived with fire ants in the rainforests of Argentina and Brazil forever. So, you know, they have encountered each other before, but always under circumstances where there was lots of other competition, hundreds of other species of ants that were used to them, you know, other things that would eat them. Now, it's just crazy ants versus fire ants. And the crazy ants have narrowed it down to chemical warfare. And what the crazy ants can do is reject the chemicals that the fire ants inject. Now, fire ant venom is vicious. It is not normal ant venom. It is an insecticide. It is even an, a bactericide. It kills bacteria. You can imagine what it does to anything else. But these, Isn't that amazing? It doesn't kill them like the way venomous right. snakes... Yeah. If, if, well, if they get injected by their own poison, could, Some of them, but through, yeah, the, yeah. through the belly doesn't. These ants have to have an immunity to their own weapon built right. into themselves... It's amazing. Uh, it's amazing this stuff happens. It really is. And so the, the crazy ants, when they fight the fire ants, they'll tear them apart with their jaws. But inevitably, they get stung or sprayed. Now, the spraying of the venom on the victim usually will give the fire ant the victory. That'll usually just kill whatever they're after. And they'll just hang out on the sideline and wait for it to die. Not so with the crazy ants. The crazy ants have their own chemical weapon. It's formic acid. This is a chemical that is commonly found in ants. In fact, formic, formosa, all that means ant. Um, but the crazy ants will wash themselves with their own special variety of formic acid, and it neutralizes the toxin. We don't know exactly how it neutralizes it. Uh, the best guess is that it prevents it from being absorbed into the ant's body. So what this means is when there's a fire ant colony and it meets a crazy ant colony, the fire ants launch their full frontal assault, and the tawny crazy ants are just like, yeah, whatever. And then the fire ants are like, we've got nothing, because these ants were the king of the heap for so long, they don't have any other defense. The tawny crazy ants can then do whatever they want. So what has been observed is that the tawny crazy ants are taking over wherever they're encountering fire ants. Uh, however, as we mentioned before, this isn't necessarily a good thing for humans because they like to live in air conditioners and houses. We've traded one yeah. invasive species for a different kind of invasive species. Yeah, right. And, and it's got a totally different set of problems. Fire ants will sting you. These guys won't. They're not going to bother humans that way. But fire ants are happy to live in that mound out in your backyard. If you leave them alone, you go, you're not going to have any problems. Also, another nice thing about fire ants is they will eat all the ticks in your yard. You can't have fire ants and ticks. So I know some people up north are thinking fire ants are pretty good. Well, that's what people in the south are thinking now, too. The people who have the crazy ants invading their homes are finding it so difficult to remove them 
Uh, and there's, a, there's this thing that happens. The, the ants will go into your electrical outlet, and one of them will get zapped, and that releases a chemical that attracts the rest because it's an, it's an attack chemical. It's like, hey, I'm being attacked. Come help. So all the ants rush in. They all get zapped, and, it's, and you end up with this massive ball of ants that has now short-circuited your wiring in your house, which could possibly lead to a fire. So these guys actually are the new fire ants, except the fire is literal. There, well, in the show notes, we'll put uh, the video yes. from the article we found, which is uh, the University of Texas at Austin. Texas and Austin. These are these are the pros. It's they a research it. film, only about a minute and a half long, but it shows you how the crazy ant reaches down past its abdomen to where its stinger is, takes a bit of the fomic acid, and then puts it all over yeah. itself. Watch and it. you see it fighting. It's very cool. If you want to see a crazy ant fight a fire ant, <laughs> and why wouldn't you? I'm going to take it, actually. I'm going to add the Star Trek fight music <laughs> underneath. And I'll put that on YouTube eventually. <laughs> a cure for the common cold. Not yet. No, I wish. But a possible cure for the common peanut allergy. A very, very big deal. But this is getting more common in mm-hmm. children. And I've heard it denigrated a bit by comedians. And I agree, it's a nice fodder. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louis C.K., by the way, does a hilarious piece on that you can find on YouTube mm-hmm. called Of Course, But Maybe. <laughs> and I find that absolutely fantastic. What I didn't realize is if you do have the more severe end of the peanut allergy, mm-hmm. it's not just a matter of, well, don't eat peanuts, dummy. Yeah, no. Everything's made in a right. factory that uses peanuts. They get in everything. And peanuts are used thanks to George Washington Carver, uh-huh. in a million little ways, as thickeners, as binders. And, and so it's way right. down on the list. You may not recognize the chemical, and that's the problem. Mm-hmm. If someone who's reasonable and smart and diligent and allergic to peanuts dies, that right. isn't as funny. Yeah, absolutely. A recent study, so published in The Lancet, which gives us at least some hope that the findings are legitimate. I found it through the bbc.co.uk, the BBC Online website. Uh, 84% of allergic children after this stud, after this experiment were able to eat the equivalent of five peanuts a day after six months. That's pretty huge. Not cured, but it solves that specific right. problem of accidental ingestion or sitting next to a kid eating a peanut butter sandwich right. could cause you not to die, but to have a, have a, have a bad day. You'd have a bad yeah. day. No one wants a six-year-old to have a bad day. No. And so now they're able to eat in the lunchroom with the other children. And the last thing you want to be is different. Yeah. Oh, heaven forbid you're different at that age at all. Yeah. There was been there have been a lot of jokes made about the, you know the peanuts table and you know no peanut butter at this table. But uh, in Vermont, where my kids went to school, peanut butter was simply not allowed. They just that's how they dealt with it. And and that's a bad idea because it's a great source of protein for children well, sure, who can ingest yeah. it. It it lasts. It, warm in a peanut butter and jelly mm-hmm. sandwich, classic staple of American childhood, lose a bit of the culture there as well. Yes. What they did was they gave them a minute amount of peanut. They built an immunization. They built a resistance. The equivalent of 170th of a peanut in the form of peanut protein powder, which mm-hmm. sounds like something you buy at GNC. Center. It does, probably too. Um, do not try this, by the way. Yeah, no. These were, don't just think, well, I'm going to shave a 70th of a peanut off <laughs> no. and give it to my child. But Well, if you're the parent of one of these children, you know this. But <laughs> don't, don't experiment with random friends blowing dust in their face of peanuts. Uh, these scientists, this trial that they had is still a new thing, though it has been published by a legitimate source, published as a trial. 
So yep, may change their minds, as science often does. And one seventieth of a peanut in a protein powder form has a few things removed from it. They can also be allergens. Sometimes you're allergic to parts of the peanut, but not the peanut as a whole, which is a very weird suballergen yeah. idea. Um, but at least that's a little bit of hope for those children who have to suffer with this random lottery of, of bad luck that could really end their day. It's it, it could. I mean, you know, in the extreme cases, yeah, your throat closes up and you die. And and what I have an issue. Uh, so Southwest Airlines, I fly Southwest fairly often, and they tend to serve peanuts. And yeah. I was really surprised at this because people have actually died on airplanes because people were eating peanuts. So it seems odd that an airline would still have peanuts. This is the downside of eliminating smoking on airplanes. Airplanes used to have to cycle the air. Oh, right. Because of yeah. smoking. Now they can lock you in a tube and you've, again, like the like the ants, you've traded one bad for yeah, the other. Right. Now you don't smell. The secondhand smoke isn't an issue at that limited exposure. Mm-hmm. But your clothes smell like cigarette smoke. Right. You're, you, you have to deal with it. And now you've traded that for the flu that's going all over the cabin now that yeah. doesn't get flushed out ever. Every other thing that can go airborne ever. Like peanut and dust. peanut dust yep. that in the 50s and 60s would not have been a, as big of a problem for a, a person on the airlines. So we've traded one for the other as we often do. Right. And so Southwest uh, Peanuts is part of their their strategy, their marketing. It was Fly for Peanuts was their original logo. So they don't want to give up the peanuts. And, and this is the part of the culture I was talking is, about. Yeah. PB&J right. and the peanuts. Their... And so we lose a little bit of the Americana and right. apple pie. Absolutely. And, yeah. and Southwest has a lot of that in their marketing. So what they'll do is if you call them up and say, hey, my kid has a peanut allergy, they won't serve peanuts on that flight. You'll get pretzels. So if you're ever on a plane, a Southwest flight, and you get pretzels, you know someone on there had an allergy. But uh, if you have a kid with a severe allergy, don't fly Southwest because there are peanuts on that plane all the time. And you don't know. I mean, if you have a little kid, there could be a bag of peanuts hiding in the seat. Uh, someone could have thrown up peanuts all over the seat the flight before. Who knows? So uh, I really hope this this study proves true because it's a it's a great disease that we need to kill. From findings published in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Ooh. Yeah, doesn't that sound, you know, wow. <laughs> the Journal of Experimental Biology. Completely sounds like an afternoon horror show type of thing. This is another article I'll, I'll put in the show notes. I got bbc.co.uk, so you get a dumbed-down layman's version with a link to the Journal of Experimental Biology yes. for those amongst you with letters at the end or beginning of your name. This is the mystery of how flying snakes stay aloft, which was a mystery for a long time until Professor Jake Socha from University of Virginia Tech in the U.S., although of Chicago yes, at one he was time, a, he was at Chicago, yeah. has apparently figured this out. Yeah, if you ever watch a video of it, he, he, how do you figure out how a snake flies? You throw it off a tower. <laughs> That's what he was doing. He's throwing these snakes the off towers. The best science involves throwing <laughs> snakes off towers yes. in Virginia. Now, we should we should hold on. for People may not have ever heard of flying snakes. So if you're imagining a snake with wings, no, no, no. This, this It's way weirder than that. Yes. It's way, way creepier weirder. and impossible. It looks like David Copperfield's <laughs> doing it. It's, it's the wonder of nature. It's as weird as flying fish, but in a different way. Yeah. Go ahead and describe it. It's just like they're swimming through air. Yeah, that's what it is. The snake, like. well, in the, the video I saw was like a National Geographic, like a Nat Geo thing. Yeah. So one and one in HD, so it slows it down a lot. So you got At- Attenborough over, okay, yeah. the snake falls or is chucked out of the tree by the <laughs> Nat Geo crew, and it flattens out, but you can't see that from yeah. the, the shot. 
and just swims down through the air. I'm not kidding. You have to see this to, and you still won't believe it. You have to see this to even ponder it. How is this possible, period? Well, so you have to ask, why is the snake doing this? So, you know, obviously you would do that for two reasons. One would be to escape, you know. I've got the snake in the tree. He's mine now. Oh, shit, he's flying away. Um, Okay, so there's that. The other is to go after prey. And what they think is that uh, evolutionarily, this snake developed the ability to jump from branch to branch. Basically, it would lurk above its prey and then fall on the branch and go after its prey. That was its mode of hunting, you know, millions of years ago. Gradually, it evolved so that the snakes that um, mutated to have slightly flatter and elongated bodies could reach further into the trees and get at their prey more easily. And now they have evolved to such an extent that this is the easiest way to describe how these things fly. They turn into frisbees. Now, they don't turn into frisbees like a big circle. What they do is they, they compress their ribs. Um, you ever do that thing where you suck in your gut and your ribs kind of stick out? You were, you were just talking about the uh, showing off your backbone. The anatomical uh, wonder. Yes. Yeah, that, uh... That's what the snakes do. They're doing the anatomical wonder. They suck in their guts. And if you were to cut the snake up, like, uh, like say you were slicing a hot dog, if you were to cut up the snake that way, sorry, snake, it would look like you had cut a Frisbee that way. They make that exact shape of a cut Frisbee. And that is a lifting body shape. There are airplanes that are shaped like this. It is a lifting body. And while this plane, a plane, while this snake can't take off and gain altitude, it can keep a whole lot of altitude. And these things can fly. Yeah, it's for remarkable how slow feet. they fall. Yeah. It like is, it, they swim. It looks like it looks like they're choosing to go down as they do. And they can. It really is yeah. remarkable they, how much they're sustaining themselves. They pick a target and they can land there and adjust as they're going. So the snake makes like an S shape. In the air, and it, it gyrates in that S to keep the motion going over its ribs, which gives it some lift. So it doesn't exactly fly. I think we're still in the gliding stage of but things. But it does produce a bit of it lift does, with the right thermal. So it gliding, does, it isn't right. falling with style. Correct. It is gliding in the category that, like you said, it can oop a little too low, and if it gets lucky at that point, right. gain a little bit more altitude. And begin falling again. That's right. It can't generate propulsion, basically. It, uh, but yeah, if there's a and it's in Southeast around, Asia, so warm yeah. currents are more sure. common there. So it, the eddies it would ride on, it would sense it them. Also, snakes. That's what they do is sense heat. Yeah. So it's it's accidentally outfitted for that right. detection system. It's almost got infrared built in. What a remarkable! Uh, can you imagine? It's it is. It's an amazing thing, and and I just you know it's a product of its environment. This snake could never have evolved, say in Indiana. You know, uh, you know, in the fields of Indiana, this poor little thing's never going to no get in With no trees to jump yeah, off right, of. You know, climbing <laughs> it glides the... from one corn stalk yeah, to the right, other. That's all it could ever do. <laughs> so the neat thing about this, though, is learning from nature. The team, this is a quote at the end of the article. The team says the snake could help inspire robotic development, wow. potentially leading to machines that can crawl, climb, and guide, and I'll add, kill humans from above. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> And now we come to a subject you're going to teach me about. So what does wine dark mean? Well, let me tell you. Um, no one's really sure. So, so here's... here's <laughs> and I love deal. to play the guitar line now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> next week. On the next week. You know. So people who are fans of Patrick O'Brien, he, uh, he writes all these old sea narratives, and they're incredibly detailed. You know, you can read 300 pages before they even set foot on the boat because they're describing how the sails are rigged. Um, the first one of his books was called The Wine Dark Sea. 
And so the word wine dark uh, didn't originate from Patrick O'Brien. It actually comes from Homer. It's in the Odyssey. It's in, uh, it's in a bunch of old Greek literature. And it's used to describe two things. One is the sea. The wine dark sea is kind of a meme of the ancient years. You see that all over the place. And the other is cattle. It is a mystery of history literature. What does wine dark mean? And there have been some crazy, crazy things suggested. So the Greeks, it's a Greek term. The Greeks used it. What did they mean? Well, first suggestion was their wine was blue. And somebody actually came up with a whole thing about how their wine was blue, completely ignoring the fact that there are also cattle named wine dark. And unless Babe the Blue Ox was over there in Greece, I don't see how that fits. Another was that the Greeks were colorblind. Um, I don't think we have any reason to believe that. And Homer, if he actually existed, was blind anyway. So he was hearing this description from others. I, I think we can dismiss the uh, colorblind theory. Um, another was that uh, they were ascribing the color of the sky to the sea. Now, this this has some, some credence because uh, that's a, you know, sailors are very... They pay close attention to the sky. Red skies at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. That has some truth to it. That is indicative of how the weather patterns are going to be. And sailing's always been this weird mix of high science and low superstition. A lot of superstition. The very old things that even in its time, uh, a person in the 16th century would be mocking sailors for being superstitious. They were always behind on that, like baseball players now. Oh, yeah. Uh, But with with sailing, you also had the cutting edge. Uh, There's a great film called Longitude, or Longitude, it's an English film, about the development of that timepiece that could travel on the sea. And you see that wonderful mix of the best scientific minds in the world next to some guy going, no, no, use your left hand on the rope or else right. the gypsy curse will come from <laughs> below. Right. We should save that for another week. That is also, that's a great story. We should put that in the notes. So uh, another one was uh, Red Tide. You know, all right, so for those who you've heard Red Tide, Crimson Tide, uh, Roll On, Crimson Tide. Well, what they're talking about is, is an infection of the ocean, basically. Red Tide is a dinoflagellate. It colors the ocean somewhat red. And so... Um, so this is the mystery of wine dark. Uh, I looked up quite a bit today on wine dark, and the etymology of the Greek word for wine dark does mean wine colored. So they were you they were saying the seas were wine colored, but there's still a, a mystery about it. Why didn't they say the seas were blue? So this is the other question: Why would they use that? Why not say they're blue? And here's the even bigger mystery: the color blue didn't exist. Right. It wasn't mentioned anywhere until about the 13th century. The word was invented in the 13th century. So here's a, here's a fun little experiment for you. Go online and look up the etymology of the word blue, and then look up the etymology of the word red. Blue is a 13th century word, has some French origins, bleu, you know, and we know what it means. Red is so old that it's called Proto-Germanic. That means the word is just, it's always been a word. You know, it it goes before history. We can't figure out, you know, Gork the caveman said red. You know, (laughs) that's all we're going to get out of that. So why, you know, why? The sky is blue. It's not like they never saw the color. Right. Why didn't they have a word for it? And that is a great mystery of history. What did somebody in the 8th century call the sky? What color was it? And hey, if you know, drop us a line and you might be able to get a Nobel Prize out of it. And finally, last week's new segment, wrong Wrong. things you thought and were incorrect about. 
I always did believe that Xmas was mm-hmm. merely a quick shorthand for Christmas. That's lazy. This is from Wikipedia. I'm going to almost go verbatim here. Uh, Xmas did not originate as a secular plan to take the Christ out of Christmas. <laughs> it is not part of our war on Christmas. X stands for the Greek letter chi, spelled chi. The starting letter of a word I can't pronounce, or Christ in Greek. The use of the letter or the X in Xmas in English traced the year 1021. Wow. Monks in Great Britain used the X while transcribing classical manuscripts into Old English, and they used that in place of Christ. Right. Just the X was the chi, which or chi, however they would say it. This is the Oxford English Dictionary's first recorded use of Christmas, Xmas for Christmas is in 1551. Yeah. So not only is it not... Well, I couldn't be more wrong. No. In 1020, uh, 21, 1551, and it isn't even a secular thing. It's a shorthand for monks because they had to transcribe every single letter by hand. Yep. Why not shorten Christ, which you write over and over and over again, to an X? They also probably spoke Greek. And, and these are people who've devoted their life to this and would not ever do anything to diminish you know, their Christ figure. Yeah, safe to say those monks were Christians. Yeah, pretty safe, yeah. <laughs> what were you wrong about? Ah, so I was wrong about something, um, you know, it's one of these uh, things you hear in middle My school. My wife loves this segment, by oh, the way. Well, good. Just me admitting I'm wrong about things. <laughs> she says this on a loop that she works out to <laughs> for the whole hour. So her whole, her whole hour is just wrong, this segment. Wrong. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I heard this as a kid, and... Uh, it was that the Romans have these great giant festivals, you know, bacchanals, yes. you know, and they would eat In New eat. Orleans, we have yeah, parades sure. on this idea <laughs> that we're wrong about. New Orleans may copy the wrong idea of the Romans if... Uh, we're good at that. Yeah. So we anyway. copy the crap out of your wrong ideas. <laughs> if you look at old maps of Colosseums and other Roman buildings, you will see something written in the margins called a vomitorium. And I was told that this was a room that one would go to vomit in so that they could eat and drink more. Well, actually, no. If you look up the etymology of the word vomit, it means exit. And what vomitoriums were were large exit ways, like you would need in a coliseum, a way to get a lot of people out of the building, not a lot of food out of your gut. But I'm pretty sure New Orleans sticks with We mix the, uh, both. Yeah. <laughs> we have the real one and the fake one in one big parade. Happy Mardi Gras. <laughs> we can't thank you enough for spending your week learning some random facts we find on the internet with us. <laughs> if you need show notes, we've got them in two locations. We've got at freakshowtell.com, which is where you'll find my little weird blend of science and freak show that I do for a living and a hobby. You can also find an identical copy of the show notes at collegeofcuriosity.com, which is the site Jeff curates and a whole travel package, a, a whole bunch of stuff there. lifestyle there, really is what you're selling there. There's actually a daily curio blog, too. So if you like this kind of thing, you can get a little bit of it every day if you check out collegeofcuriosity.com. As always, we end with the answer to the puzzle, the first puzzle I've solved. Yes. I was so very happy that you dumbed it down to my level. <laughs> so the puzzle is, if Billy was born on December 28th, how is it that his birthday is always in the summer? And the answer is quite simple. Billy is from Australia, where it is summer in December. Those of us in the the U.S.-centric world may not realize this, but guess what? When it's winter up here, it's summer down there. So, this has created a mystery for history literature. Um, The history of literature is a mystery of... 
Um, <laughs> we will cut this part out. If you hear this, Tom didn't cut it out, and he should have. <laughs> now he's going to leave it in because he thinks it's funny. All right, so 